0: out in prayer uh, after that. Welcome to the Emanuel Baptist Church podcast. We pray that the sermon you're about to hear would be useful as you grow in your love for God and your love for His church. Now, here's today's sermon. Well, hey, normally I would tell you to turn to 1 John, uh, and I will be in November. Um, We're going to be jumping back into that study, but we're going to be taking a break the next four weeks from 1 John. And we're actually going to be talking about financial stewardship in light of all of that, the, the Vision for Tomorrow campaign. And so um, currently in this three-year capital stewardship campaign, uh, we want to see the Family Life Center uh, started and, and begun being built. And so I want to talk about that uh, the next few weeks and, and casting the vision uh, for that, uh, that we might as a church rally together and see that happen. And so um, if maybe some of you don't know what we're talking about when it comes to the Family Life Center, or if you do, your memory is a little blurry on where we're at and what that'll look like and what's it going to involve and all that. So let me give a little bit of background info on the building project for those who might need it, and uh, then we'll, we'll dive into God's Word about what that looks like. Firstly, I've got a blueprint, front-facing image of what our current building looks like. I know it's pretty small, but if you're out on the street looking at our church, that's what it looks like, right? And now, if we added the addition of what we're, we're raising right now, this is what it would look like, or will look like, rather. It will look like that, okay? Okay? That's all new addition. Now, if we can put them next to each other, um, I think that's the next one, and that's the difference. And so, just to give you a little bit of an image, because maybe you don't even have an image of what we're giving to, it's, it's helpful to have an image of what you're giving towards and contributing to, and, and that's what it is, a large addition into our church. It'll include multiple things, including a gymnasium slash fellowship center, or fellowship hall, uh, which will seat 500 people. That's the new addition. It'll have an industrial kitchen. It'll have classrooms, I think approximately 10 new classrooms, a library, a large lobby, baptismal dressing rooms, a panic room, praying we never need it, always good to have, much storage, and and many other things that I I couldn't list, but that is a large part of what this would be um, involving. So what are the finances of this project? Well, currently we have raised a total of $800,000 to this project, which that's amazing. That's just absolutely incredible, and I think, as Josh said, that really gives a testimony to God is in this, and He's um, seeing it happen. We've raised a total of $800,000, and we currently have $598,000 in hand as we speak. It's amazing that actually this month alone we will pass $600,000, uh, in hand in the bank for it and that's only 600 rather than 800 because we've spent 200,000 for the land that we're going to be building on okay so that's where we stand currently now what does that mean when it comes to our campaign goals well knowing that what are our goals for our campaign well, I've, I've got a chart here, three different goals, stair-stepping up. The first one is our victory goal of $275,000. Well, what makes $275,000 a victory or a success? Well, if we raise $275,000 through this campaign, taking into account the money that our church is already setting aside each year, we're already doing that, factoring that in, then by the end of this three-year campaign, we can begin building with 50% of the cost in hand. That's a victory. That's success. So that is our victory goal. Then there's our challenge goal that the committee, the steering team, got together and we came up with that we want for our church. We have a challenge goal of raising $400,000 through this three-year campaign. And this would not only allow us to begin building with 50% in hand, but we would have an even better starting point financially moving forward. Okay, so that's our challenge goal. Last we though, lastly, though, we wanted to set a goal which we're calling our hallelujah goal. We see all over God's word that he does amazingly abundant things for his people. And we've even seen him do that here at Emmanuel Baptist Church, right? Real time, tangibly experienced. And so we're shooting for $550,000 committed by our church now and then actually raised in the course of three years. Now, let me just give you an idea of what that would do if we reached such a goal. This would allow us to have approximately, not 50%, but two-thirds of the final cost in our hands to build. I could go even further than that as the costs are based on estimates given to us over six months ago. And you know over six months ago, building costs were even higher than they are now. And so they could go down, and in doing so, $550,000 could bring us even further than having two-thirds cost in hand. So that's where we're at. Now, let me try to read your mind a little bit, some of you. And you may be asking, okay, Should we just expect this and the next three sermons to be fundraising sermons then? (laughs) Maybe you're thinking that, and I just want to address that. Maybe awkwardness for you. I assure you, more awkwardness for me. Are these sermons about raising money, and I want to give you an emphatic no. Actually, no. No. Any discomfort that you may have with capital campaign sermons, let me just put you at ease. I probably have felt that, but even more so, (laughs) being the guy standing up here. So, That's not what I'm I'm doing, just trying to raise money. And I actually want to especially emphasize what I don't want to do. I don't want to take time typically given to exalting God and give it to lesser things. Okay? I don't want money emphasized over gospel. I don't want material things emphasized over spiritual things. I don't want temporary structures emphasized over eternal souls, not in this pulpit, okay? And so let me just give you a disclaimer, rather a promise. This short four-week sermon series, before we jump back into the book of 1 John, is not a sales pitch, That's not me, that's not my style, that's not what this pulpit is for. This pulpit is not for money and business plans. If you're like, well, what is it for? Let me tell you. This pulpit is for gospel proclamation. It's for Bible interpretation, for theological explanation, God exaltation, and Christian application. Okay? So, this four week series is not a sales pitch. And this short four week sermon series is also not even about a building, ultimately. We're going to talk a lot about the building and the vision for tomorrow, but it's ultimately not about it. Do you know Scripture, recording the words of our Lord and Savior Himself, says that we should not invest into things that rust and fade. Amen? Shouldn't invest into things that rust and fade and you can't take with you when you die. And so let me just tell you, don't. Don't invest into such things. You're like, man, he is really, really blowing it here (laughs) with the capital campaign. Don't invest into things that rust and fade, but rather invest into things that are greater. Invest in greater things than a building, but which a a building could be instrumental and helpful in accomplishing. You see, don't invest into a structure Invest into the ministry that the structure might aid us in doing. So I'd encourage you, invest in discipleship op- opportunities in our church. Invest in that. Pour your life into discipleship opportunities. Let me tell you, the current reality is, and maybe you don't know that because you're not in the background workings of our church, let me just tell you the current reality is, is that we have hit the ceiling with space for Wednesday night kids and youth. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not just saying that. You can ask Pastor Trent. You can ask Shelley and Luke Noyd who run our children's time. We've hit the ceiling, and we've had multiple meetings of how are we going to make this happen. I've even had very real conversations about moving adult Bible study off-site into small groups because we need a place for our youth to go so our kids have a place to go. Currently, our kids are meeting in the kitchen. And so we've hit the ceiling. We truly have on Wednesday night activities for our kids and our youth. That's the current reality. The current reality is that our Sunday school classes have met in a hallway before. And we've had a Sunday school class meet in a five by 10 room before. And so the vision for tomorrow isn't a building. It's that we might have enough rooms for discipleship to happen and training our children and youth and people of all ages to deepen in the Word of God and their commitment to it. Invest in that. Invest in that. Invest in more opportunities to reach the community. Not a structure, but the ability to reach our community in bigger and better and newer ways that we haven't been able to do before. The current reality is is that We're not able to host some large school events for the school districts in our area or community events because we don't have the space. That's okay. But the vision for tomorrow is maybe just maybe we would have enough space that Emmanuel Baptist Church would be the place that any community event, if it's large enough, would come to and say, "Emmanuel always has their door open to host and love and welcome and encourage. They are a welcoming church that has the space and they let us use it. That is an opportunity to be a lighthouse and a beacon for our community. The current reality is though we can't always do that. The current reality is that we don't even have the option if we wanted to provide a Christ-centered learning center for children throughout the week. Say we would want to. It's not really even feasible with our current facilities. But our vision for tomorrow is that this could even, it it could just be on the table of one of the many ways in which we could use this new facility for outreach and gospel proclamation to our community who needs it. And so I'm not, I don't want to belabor the point, but I'm not preaching about a building. I want to preach the next few weeks about expanding the options of gospel proclamation that we're already doing but maybe could do in newer ways. So here's the plan for my series. This short time on this study. I met with Pastor Trent this week and we just talked and planned and just talked to what, what is it that we talk about? Actually, not just this last week, but multiple weeks now. And our desire is that we would shape our minds in these four weeks, that we would shape our minds on one question, okay? When we give, what are we doing? When we give, what are we doing? And I want to emphasize, we're not just fulfilling a transaction. We're not just handing over dollar bills. We're doing actually something more than that, something deeper than that. So when we're giving, what is it that we're doing? So today, week one, we'll talk about giving as A joyful sacrifice. Giving isn't just handing over money. Giving can be and ought to be, as Lisa mentioned in the children's message, a joyful sacrifice. Secondly, giving is to be an act of faith. Thirdly, giving is to be a planted seed. And lastly, giving as a collective effort. So in each of these, I'm praying that we all grow increasingly. That, that in these four messages, that your heart and my heart, our heart would grow increasingly motivated to give of ourselves to the mission of God. Not because we're obligated just to hand over dollar bills, but because we want to invest and we want to give A joyful sacrifice. We want to act out in faith. We want to plant a seed. And we want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves as a collective effort. And so may we see giving as not just giving, but as much more than that. So today, a joyful sacrifice. Firstly, let's talk about giving as a sacrifice, because that's the harder one, right? Let's end on a high note, yeah? Okay, all right. Just me. No, that's fine. Giving is just, let's just talk about the sacrifice first. Think about this with me. Gifts, if they're meant to be meaningful, right, we want our gifts to be meaningful. If they're meant to be meaningful, it first actually has to mean something to you as the giver, right? If it's going to be meaningful to them, it's good for them to know that it means something to you giving it over to them. I was at my in-laws' house last night, and uh, my mother-in-law is a hospice nurse, and so she goes and visits a lot of patients, the tail end of life, and, uh, and one woman, she had shown me, my mother-in-law did on her kitchen table last night, just this pile of little trinkets, and like little dishes, you know, that you can't even fit a walnut on, and so just random little things, I don't know what you would even use them for, and uh, I said, what is that, Tammy? and uh, she said, yeah, a patient that I've been going to visit, she just insists that I have them and and take them, and, uh, you know, you want to be kind. Obviously, you're not going to use them, but you want to be kind, and so you, said, oh, thank you so much, and takes it, takes it home, adds it to the pile, and uh, she found out eventually that <laughs> The family doesn't want those things, and that's the pile of the things that the family doesn't want. And so the, <laughs> the, the woman's just giving it off to her because I guess the family doesn't want to deal with it when she passes. Wow, heartfelt. So truly heartfelt. <laughs> Thank you. I'm happy to be your junk drawer and your trash bin. Gifts, if they're, if they're meant to be meaningful, they actually have to mean something to the giver for the gift itself to have value Of course, the best example of this is our salvation that God gifted to us in His dying on the cross, right? Salvation is deeply meaningful because what it cost the giver. And we don't have to go any further than the infamous John 3.16 to see that. For God so loved the world that that He gave His only Son. How did God love the world? How did He express that He loves us he gave, not something that was meaningless, not a trinket. He gave His only Son to die on a cross. It gives great meaning to salvation when you think of the cost for the giver. But when you think about it, flip, flip the roles now, right? Not God giving to us, but us giving to God. The rule is still the same. When we give a gift to God, it's supposed to mean something to the worshiper, right? God wanted Abraham to show his devotion by doing what? By giving his only son, Isaac, on the altar. Abraham, you want to show your devotion to me? That son of promise. That son that's going to give you Descendants of many nations. You want to show your devotion? I need you to kill your son and sacrifice him to me. Jesus celebrated the widow who gave all she had. Remember? The woman with the might? He celebrated her in Mark chapter 2. But Jesus grieved the rich young ruler who wanted to follow him but didn't want it to cost him anything. Do you see the contrast of the two? I think probably the most impactful example that we have in Scripture of a a worshiper giving much to God, aside from the story of Abraham sacrificing, sacrificing Isaac on Mount Moriah. It's the story of David. Let me give you the background story of this. In 2 Samuel... David had sinned against God, and because of his actions, a plague was breaking out all throughout Israel. I think some 70,000 people had died because the actions of one man. Could you imagine the guilt and the burden that you'd be carrying, knowing that the actions that you had committed had caused the death of 70,000 people? And so, David Talks to this prophet and he says, "How can I get God to stop this plague?" And the prophet tells him, "Go and offer a sacrifice at the threshing floor on the property owned by a man named Aruna. Okay, go to Aruna's property and on his threshing floor offer a sacrifice, and God will stop the plague." So David went to Aruna, and he said that he would buy the whole plot of land to off- offer a sacrifice on it. He says, "Aruna, I'll take your whole lot." I need to offer sacrifice right now. And Aruna, knowing that David was the king of the land, he said, no, 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 no. You don't need need to buy it from me. Have the plot of land. You're the king. Just have the plot of land. And this is what we find in 2 Samuel 24, 24. This is the king's response, David's response. He says, but the king said to Aruna, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. It will not offer I will not offer a burnt offering to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Now, the amazing part of the story might have been lost on you in the first reading of it. It did it was on me. Here's the amazing part. The reality is is that the threshing floor owned by Aruna was many years before historically called Mount Moriah? The same mount that Abraham went up to sacrifice his son Isaac on. Picture it with me. David knew all the stories passed down about his forefathers including the story of his forefather Abraham willing to sacrifice his other forefather Isaac on Mount Moriah. David knew of this story and there David stood the same place as Abraham standing where Abraham stood with a knife in hand about to sacrifice his only son. David couldn't fathom sacrificing a donation given to him that cost him nothing that he received from somebody else. Not when he knew what Abraham had done, that same spot. It had to mean something to him. It had to mean something to him. So, metaphorically speaking, not literally obviously, but metaphorically speaking, I think we also find ourselves standing where our forefathers stood. What I mean by that is when we see the example of Abraham and his sacrifice, and when we see the example of David and his sacrifice. when we see our forefathers that have gone before us, how could we possibly give what doesn't mean much to us? You see, giving unto the Lord is a calling of sacrificing much so that it is meaningful to us. So, Giving is meant to be a sacrifice, but not just a sacrifice where we're groaning and aching and in pain and in agony, but a sacrifice that actually is one of joy. It's a joyful sacrifice. Let me talk through that with you very quickly. Giving is meant to bring you joy, and it's already been read this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 5 through 7, we read, Paul says, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you. And arrange in advance for the gift that you've promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, is what Paul says, whoever sows sparingly, right, or gives sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves, not a reluctant giver or a compulsed giver, God loves a cheerful giver. One who gives unto his own accord. So can I just tell you, I thought I was bad at doing a sales pitch for Capital Campaign before. Let me tell you this. God doesn't want your heartless obedience. He he would never, and He doesn't ever in Scripture say, just do it and get over it. That's not God's heart. God's heart isn't just do it. Don't think about it. It's never what God says. God wants our joy in our obedience. He wants your joy in your giving. And so my sales pitch, if I have any at all, is don't give it. If it'll rob you of your joy when you do, but give that it might bring joy in your heart, knowing the impact it will make. Your sacrifice is meant to be joyful. It's a natural question. Can I just maybe try to get into your mind again? How can I be joyful when I give so much away? How can I be joyful when I just give so much away? I think I've told the story before of a, a famous pastor and his wife planning their house. He's told the story before, and I just repeating it. And they 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 went apart for a little while and they and they started talking. Okay, what are some necessities that we need in this house? Like let's really just like what do we definitely need? Some non-negotiables. You ever had that conversation? And so they start having that conversation. After some time, they come back together. And she says, Okay, you first, honey. Grabs his paper out, unfolds it. She goes, What do you got? What are some real non negotiables for this house? He said, Running water. And all the women, you know, she just took her list and folded it back up. And, okay, okay, that's. Anything else? No, I think uh, I think we could make it. Running water, <laughs> and she's, huh? Okay. Well, what she had on her list was a porch, and ideally it'd be screened in, right? Nice patio. The reality is, is that it's really hard to joyfully look into the future if the future means much sacrifice. It's hard to see that and think. I don't get that. I might not have that. How can I have joy? That woman, I think, well represents you and I. Represents me. Oftentimes, the natural question is how could I possibly be joyful when I give so much away? God's answer is in the next few verses of 2 Corinthians 9 that we just read. He He says that sacrifice, let me tell you, church, sacrifice doesn't suffocate joy. It's a means to it. Sacrifice doesn't suffocate joy. It's a means to it. Let me quickly run through the next four verses of 2 Corinthians 9. After he just says God loves a cheerful giver, what do the next four verses do? And they give us four realities that should motivate the cheerful giver to keep on giving cheerfully. Verse 8 tells us that, hey, when you give cheerfully, just remember, your needs are going to be taken care of when you do. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work He says, give cheerfully, and the first encouragement I have to you is that I'm going to take care of your needs when you do give. The second motivation for our giving is in verse 9, and he says that your giving has eternal consequences. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now, you might say, how in the world does that have anything to do with the eternal consequences of my giving? When you read that, it normally, I don't know if you're like me, that seems like he's talking about God here, doesn't it? He's not. He's not. Actually, this is found in Psalm 112, verse 9, and it's clearly talking about the generous giver, the Christian And Paul says, you're giving to the poor. That righteousness, those deeds of righteousness have eternal ramifications. And so, God says he loves a cheerful giver. How could we possibly be that? Well, verse 8 says, your needs are going to be taken care of. You can trust that. Verse 9 says, what you're giving to has eternal consequences. Verse 10, God will guarantee the effectiveness. You don't have to worry that it's going to go to waste. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. This should motivate you to give cheerfully, knowing it's not going to waste. God ensures that. Lastly... Verse 11, God will restock and replenish your giving envelope so that you can keep on giving. He says, you will be enriched in every way, so to be generous in every way. Which through us will produce, what? Thanksgiving to God. Now, can I just wrap all that up very quickly for you? you and I naturally think sacrifice will suffocate joy. That giving much will take from my joy. The Bible says the exact opposite. He says, don't give out of compulsion or obligation. No, give cheerfully. Well, how could we do that, God? Read verses 8 through 11 and know that God will take care of you when you give. You can know that your giving will reverberate for all of eternity. That God will not let your giving go to waste, but He will multiply it. And when we know these things, how could we not give with an energized, excited, cheerful heart? My last thoughts are this it's not about you or me giving about the, the best example of a cheerful giver. It's God Himself. Jesus sacrificed much, and He rejoiced in doing it. If you're going to remember any verse that I talked about today, let it be Hebrews 12.2. Hebrews 12.2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross Jesus is the best example of a joyful giver He sacrificed much for the much of joy I think this is why he loves to see you and I as cheerful givers to give joyfully Because when we joyfully sacrifice, please don't miss this, when you joyfully sacrifice, we mirror the image of our Creator. He loves to see His people look more like Him, and He is the pentacle example of one who sacrifices, but not begrudgingly, but on that cross, joyfully, for your benefit. So, let me just finish with this. Today, in the next three weeks, it's not about a building. It's not even about finances. Instead, today is about the character traits of joy and sacrifice. We see them perfectly in Christ our King, the Savior, who climbed up on that cross. Joy sacrifice, and it's possible for His image bearers to reflect it as well. This can be demonstrated in our finances, in our conversations, in everything that we do. And may it be so if we reflect the image of Christ, our Savior. Let me pray for us. Thanks for listening to today's sermon. If you live in or near Bethany, Missouri, we invite you to join us for our worship services held on Sunday morning and Sunday evenings, as well as our various activities on Wednesday nights. For more information on how you can get involved, visit our website at bethanyibc.com.